what we're able to do with AI is we're able to, to model the data right across the market and in different segments. And we're able to then create what is a, a time series forecast to then project the trajectory of that trend. And, uh, you know, we do that with over 90% accuracy. Our expert trend forecasters need to be open to what the data is showing, but equally our, our data scientists need to be open to the fact that the model may be missing something. Welcome back to the Web Chat podcast with me, Sam Ridgway. Thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to this episode. If you haven't already heard our previous episode with Duncan Mackay from AI Static, I really recommend you go back and listen to that incredible work coming from the Oxford University spin-out AI Static. They're using state-of-the-art computer vision and, and deep learning technology to solve the problem of returns and misfitting clothing for, for retailers, but ultimately for end users. So do go back and listen to that episode. Duncan talks to us about founding that business from his own personal experience and bringing it to where it is today. But I've got another brilliant guest for you on today's episode, and we are staying in the fashion retail industry. Francesca Muston is Vice President of Fashion at the world-leading trend forecasting company WGSN. And WGSN is the number one consumer trend forecaster in the world. They use expert trend forecasting combined with data science, which Francesca will explain a bit more about in this episode. And they use that to help global companies and brands get ahead of the right trends. WGSN provide consumer insight, product design direction, uh, trading strategies to help businesses both create sustainably in the future and ultimately land the right trends at the right time in order to maximize sales. Francesca has been a trend forecaster with WGSN for the last 20 years and now leads a team of trend and data experts in delivering well-evidenced trend directions that enable clients to make decisions with confidence. Francesca is a seasoned speaker. She has presented and consulted for global brands, retailers, manufacturers, advising them on future strategies and sustainability. Her contributions and, and insight in the whole future of fashion discussion can be found in, in National Press, in The Economist, in The Wall Street Journal, to name a few. And despite vast experience in, in fashion, Francesca also holds a level four data analytics apprenticeship and other data analysis qualifications, which she talks about in this episode, actually, and explains how she chose to upskill in that area in order to enable her to collaborate effectively with the WGSN data science team on the unique quantitative and qualitative approach which drives WGSN's forecasting. And Francesca and I talk a lot about this quantitative-qualitative balance in this episode. WGSN uses state-of-the-art machine learning and AI tools in its forecasting, but something that Francesca makes very clear is that really that's only half of the picture for WGSN and that human intelligence, the context, the nuance that human experience brings is so, so central in what WGSN do and indeed is what Francesca believes leads to such accuracy in their forecasting. And I think it's a conversation that is applicable to listeners in any industry, actually, not least the importance of integrating trend forecasting into buying and planning decisions. 
but also how we balance artificial and human intelligence. Where are the opportunities? Where do we need to hold back and look at our tools as a whole, both human and technological? And where is the nexus for those things? And Francesca and I also look at some of the problems specific to fashion retail industry that AI and machine learning is is helping to solve. A great example of, of where AI machine learning can be utilized to really start solving tangible problems for businesses. So a really interesting conversation coming up, but I started out by asking Francesca just how she came to be where she is today. If I think back to where I started at WGSN, I have to stretch my mind back quite a little while because I have been a trend forecaster for WGSN now for 20 years. I celebrated my 20 year anniversary this year, which is um, well, quite mind blowing to really think that that helps. Um, but I would say it's a, a sort of testament to uh, how interesting it is to work in this field. I am never bored um, and I do find the process of, um, of sort of advocating for the future in a way uh, is kind of how I see it as, uh, yeah, just incredibly inspiring and I get to work with all sorts of really interesting people. So uh, when I started at WGSN, I actually started on the retail desk and I had... I had a lovely job. <laughs> My job was uh, I used to go um, travel all around the world and I used to look in the shops and I used to compile trend reports based on what was selling in the shops. So, um, yeah, I used to go every month. I'd go off somewhere different throughout my sort of 20s. I would just be in like, I don't know, like Tokyo or Paris or New York or L.A. or Hong Kong or Rio or whatever it was. And, um, yeah, people used to say to me, I can't believe that is your actual job. I don't think I could either. And then I guess I'd been doing that for probably about five to ten years when we started to look a bit more at data. And my first introduction to that really was that I built our first taxonomy to categorize fashion in order that we could target our images for a search for our customers. So I, uh, I worked with some external consultants on, yeah, essentially creating our first fashion taxonomy. And I also recruited and trained our first team of people to uh, tag those images. And fashion is an exceptionally difficult topic to, uh, to categorize because by its nature, it keeps changing the whole time. <laughs> and it's it, we have all of these wonderful things that in the industry we call a fashion hybrid and that would be things like a coatigan or a shacket yes okay yeah yeah. or a jegging you know yeah. like when when does a, a kind of clog become a mule yeah <laughs> other yeah. kind of <laughs> conversation and, and we've all kind of said oh well i've got this I, I don't really know how to describe it it's not really a shirt it's not really a yeah okay and that okay yeah they're hybrids those are hybrids and, and then you have to kind of work out, well, which, which of these categories am I going to put it in? Am I going to put it in both? And so, yeah, building that, that taxonomy was, I guess that was the real, the, really the start of how I then started to think about our forecasting work from more of a data point of view. And from there, we started to work with our catwalk images as a data set. 
And what's great about working with catwalk images, particularly as a data set, is that it's a nice complete data set in that you've got the looks that come down the catwalk and you can kind of count all the looks and you can count all the items and then you can work out as a percentage how many of them were skirts or trousers or whatever and at first we literally used to count them and then once we had our image search you see what we could do is we could um, extract that metadata as a file and we had like a, a our IT team brought us a sort of little interface that we could use to query that um, that data set and then we could look at you know how many ruffles there were and how many uh, pleated skirts and then you can look at it then versus the year before and then you can start to look at okay relative growth and, and decline over time so that was when i first started working with uh with data then what we did is we actually we realized that our clients were starting to use google search to understand when to bring in certain items so they were looking at things like when were people searching for maxi dresses and helping using that information to help inform when they should start phasing those items in so we basically took this information and thought well what could we do to to kind of uh, take a sort of similar approach and from there we built a platform and a data set and it's a data set that still powers a lot of our ai today and we we uh, scrape retail data um, from e-commerce sites and from that we're able to for example we're able to see what the product is what the size skews are the color options and its price its fabric composition its description and then over time we're able to see did it go up in price did it go down in price did some of those sizes and colors sell out how quickly did it sell out at full price or was it available at, at kind of rock bottom price and sort of use those as a way to infer um, performance of products over time and again you know we have had to do a lot of work with our classification and taxonomy in, in order to build the rules to be able to effectively classify that information and I suppose we launched that I, I remember those being launched in sort of a similar time to when I had my two children <laughs> managed to duck, duck out of duck out of the office during that particular pointy moment so that would have been um, yeah I guess about 11 years ago that we we sort of launched that so it was it was quite a while ago now yeah, yeah. okay so so an amazing amazing um, journey really for you to have been been on that whole evolution yeah quite personally suppose... but also for the company yeah, and I suppose I've kind of missed out, arguably, the most important bit in the context of this podcast where you wanted to talk about AI. So, um, yeah, so that I started to then work with a, a couple of people who I hired as data analysts. But bear in mind, like, I'm a fashion creative. I am, I am not a data analyst. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and 
it's, and then it, it started to essentially get a bit beyond me, right? So, okay, okay. Uh, so uh, we brought in, then at that point, we started to bring in more qualified people, actual data scientists, actually qualified in, in doing this uh, analysis and working with these data sets that we had. But then during the pandemic, I, I undertook um, a workplace apprenticeship for 18 months and... I did become a data analyst <laughs> and so yeah uh, I learned how to write python and sql and you know query databases and build models and all of that kind of stuff now I should clarify that none of the models that we use were built by me <laughs> but what it has enabled us me to do is to have a much greater understanding of what's possible and also when I'm working with the team I am able to understand what I'm really asking <laughs> yeah. um, and when I'm speaking with our clients I'm able to talk much more to the value of our data and what it's able to do for them yeah yeah I could see that I, I mean it, different but I suppose a, a parallel for us is you know our, our lawyers um are also running a business day to day, and so we we will regularly put them through, uh, you know, whether that's financial training or ops or HR or whatever it might be, because they're in the same way as you said there, they're advising businesses that are facing the same issues, the the same the same problems to solve, and and so um, if we can upskill them as well, it it informs the advice we give, and it it, it just opens up. Uh, a whole world of of what you think is possible or, or what you you know what you can see as as issues or problems so I, I can completely relate to that i think what's really interesting about it as well right is that um you know my team on on wgsm fashion are largely fashion designers who mm. are not the first people you think of when you <laughs> think about data analysis but um What's really interesting about it for me is the right brain, left brain approach to things. And if you can really get that working together effectively. And I'd say that's a real focus for us at WGSN. And it's something actually we look for right from when we're recruiting, whether we're recruiting somebody on the data team or whether we're recruiting somebody on the sort of the forecasting content creation team, we are looking for that ability to kind of flex in both ways because what that does is it enables us to kind of foster this culture within our business where both of those things are equally respected for the part that they play in in the process and in our forecasting and I think it's too easy to kind of become entrenched on one end of that spectrum or the other and not really give the the kind of the other side the 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 credibility that it deserves in in how it, it's able to kind of um, add to our forecasting process so yeah we do absolutely take a real kind of quantum call approach to our forecasts and like we really try and ensure that that is embedded right the way through the business mm. and um hopefully we'll come on to some sort of specifics there and, and talk a bit more about that but uh, just just um to move on i think AI seems uh, talk around AI and machine learning and big tech is is kind of omnipresent at the moment, and certainly the chatter about it is, and, and sometimes that's sort of no more than than hot air really. But the more I've looked at it, as 
I suppose a, a relative outsider to the, to the fashion uh, industry, at least. Um, the more it seems that fashion, particularly, or at least certain retailers, certain brands, certain fashion houses, are really beginning to gain tangible commercial benefit in in implementation of of specific AI systems or tools that are genuinely solving problems for for retailers, for end users, for customers. And they're not just there because of sort of shiny new toy syndrome. They are, they are at least it seems, addressing real problems that, that brands and, and retailers have got. But I wanted to ask you more specifically about one of those problems being, being overproduction and, and waste and the environmental cost of, of the industry. And it, I must admit, it's something I, I was pretty ignorant to prior to doing a bit of reading before chatting to you. But there is huge environmental uh, damage of overproduction, obviously, um, which is, I was really quite shocked to read about. I think I, I read somewhere something like between 15 and 45 billion garments of 150 billion produced a year and never sold or worn. And, and yes. most of them end up in landfill or incinerated. And I suppose with that comes the, the kind of brand damage or, or, or uh, reputational damage that to a to a brand sustainability agenda so it's a huge huge problem and I, I feel like it's coming into the microscope more under the microscope more and more i guess my question is how can the the ai machine learning tools that wgsn possess and you've referenced briefly there how can they really help to address an issue as huge as that uh, how are they already helping and where does that fit in yeah, sure. This is uh, an issue which is very close to my heart. I do a, a lot of work with our team on sustainability and with our clients on sustainability as well as on um, the data side. And yeah, you're absolutely right. There is uh, the fashion industry has a lot of work to do. And, you know, even if you are using cotton from a regenerative farm and you're paying your farmer fairly and you're designing that garment in a way that is circular and can be dissembled or biodegradable or whatever it is, it sort of doesn't matter if <laughs> nobody ever buys it and wears it. You have That is still completely wasted resource and that is all of the emissions associated with that garment have been for nothing. And I think that, you know, that is a very kind of harsh reality that everybody needs to face up to. I suppose as forecasters, absolutely, you know, we're able to to support in this. And I, if I think back to sort of pre-AI, if you like, when we would present our forecasts, we would just talk about all of the things that were coming up and our clients would go in and they would select which ones were relevant for them and their businesses. But we were never able to really give any guidance, any quantitative guidance on the relative size of these trends. So it was all down to the the retailer to decide how big do I go on this? And you can overstate a trend very easily. So is that uh, if they're overbuying a trend is um, that is a new trend and they think, right, this is it. I'm going to put back this horse and this is going to be the big one. And then it turns out not to be, you know, then that's going to be where some of that comes from. 
But equally, another big reason for overproduction is if a trend is actually over. And so it's like those two ends of the spectrum. So Mm. that trend moment has passed and nobody wants it anymore or the trend moment has yet to come and you've gone too early. Mm. It's that kind of too early and too late on it, really. Um, and getting those those volumes wrong. Now, of course, much is made of TikTok and how fast trends are and, and how quickly the fashion industry turns everything around. But the reality of it is, is that most of our clients work on an, a one to two year lead time. Um, they will have some portion of what they're doing that's on a shorter lead. But of course, in order to be profitable and optimize their margins it's far more profitable to book in advance get those preferential rates and of course the the higher the volumes the better the margins so in the, in that sense those are big bets that are being made and you need to absolutely make sure that you're getting them right so then thinking about how ai can help that is that if you know a lot of retailers will look at their own historical data as their kind of gold standard of right let's look and see what happened last year and we will we'll then project that forward into our uh, our next season's assortments uh, profile if you like and then we'll work out where the differences are going to be and which trends we're going to uh, kind of start backing away from and which new ones we're going to start adding in but that uh, decision on, on what to do less of and what to do more of and what to introduce that's new will often be driven a lot by gut instinct which I think is another way to sort of uh, talk about experience. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. When when somebody says gut instinct, what they really mean is their experience as, mm-hmm. as an as an expert, right, in that field. And what we're able to do with AI is we're able to to model the data right across the market and in different segments, and we're able to then create what is a, a time series forecast to then project the trajectory of that trend. And uh, you know we do that with over ninety percent accuracy. And one of the ways in which it's useful is that it brings in several different data sources, so that it's not uh, dependent only on it's it's not one view on mm. the research that you would do as a as a buyer or a designer in fashion on on trend so it um is underpinned by e-commerce data which actually is the best predictor of of trends because we'll test that in our our model testing process but it also brings in catwalk data and what we do with the catwalk data is it will look at the correlation of that item with the catwalks. And if it finds a strong correlation, then over a certain threshold, it will then bake that uh, into the model. And then it also looks at um, social media and search data as well. So you're kind of getting all of the areas or that certainly all the main areas of, of how anybody would go about researching a, tra- a fashion trend and you're aggregating them into that kind of one source of truth and one one view on where that trend is going and then what the output of the model is is essentially it is a proportion of your mix 
that that category or that item should be taking up. So then we can say, relatively speaking, should you be increasing the amount of dresses and decreasing the amount of jeans or whatever it is? And then within jeans, you can say, right, should you be continuing to decrease the skinny? How much is it dropping down by? Like, what is the relative sort of increase of a, a wide leg jean, for example? It's, uh, it's fascinating, but you and you referenced the um, the skinny gene there. I think there was uh, a joint study between WGSN and OCNC, yes. and they're looking at a particular uh, mass market retailer who I, I think uh, I won't mention, but I think I know because I think I remember seeing it in in the news about um, a, a big overbuy on women's skinny jeans. But I was looking at that, and and some of the sort of headline figures as to um, I suppose savings or sort of the alternative outcomes that, that could have happened had forecast data uh, trend forecasting been integrated into the, the buying process i think it was like a an estimated Im improved margin of 1 to 1.5 million 10 to 10 to 40,000 fewer um, units of of terminal stock reduction of 500 plus tons of co2 so that's like that's real genuine sort of game changing stuff isn't it where 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 that trend forecasting is integrated and and that process that you've just described is integrated there's real bottom line difference here exactly exactly and that was a brave decision for any retailer to back away from that skinny jean because the skinny jean is often talked about in um fashion trend cycles because where you look at uh, different trends that kind of come in and come out on certain cycles like the skinny jeans started really in the in the early noughties and if you're around and about uh, you know just watching what people wear mm. which as a trend forecaster I think the entire time <laughs> um you know there are still a lot of people who are out wearing skinny jeans right because yeah. that skinny jean represents like such a sort of foundational element to how people have been dressing for so long and particularly women who are maybe millennials and gen x that they're really wedded to that skinny jean because for so long it has just been the building block of their outfit so you could wear for example a knee-high boot over the top of it you know you can wear something that's like a little longer with it or you wear something that's like a little shorter with it if it's got like a higher waist or whatever it is but if you then switch from a skinny jean to a wide leg jean it changes up the proportions and the silhouette of an outfit and then suddenly things don't look right anymore and it's like well hang on which shoes am I going to wear with this and hang on like my long coat now look, looks weird with this and so getting although that we were talking in the industry about the decline of the skinny jean and there was a lot of press about it I felt like that kind of it was a was a very prolonged <laughs> decline in the skinny jean but meanwhile you've got gen z coming up who are wearing a much baggier silhouette and you know they're much more driven by these forces things like gender neutrality which are having a huge inf influence on like how they're dressing but also gen z are very politically activated generation and mm -hmm. often what you get where they're seeing themselves as very different from older generations is that they want to 
show up differently. They want to dress differently. They don't want to be wearing like the same skinny jeans as like all of these other older people. They want to like come with their new aesthetic. And I think this is a really good example of where a quantum qual approach mm. is really important because you have to understand that context of what's driving this, where is it coming from. But for a retailer who has had historically the skinny jean would have taken up at least 50% of their denim mix. And you think about, I mean, you just mentioned some of the numbers involved there, right? That is how much money is tied up in in skinny jeans. It's absolutely huge, absolutely huge. And it takes a, a brave buyer to sort of stand in their, in their meetings in front of their seniors and say, I think we need to be reducing this where it has been like an absolute cash cow for them for so long mm. and so you really do need that data to back it up and and you need to have that confidence to be able to say no i think this is the right thing because otherwise you are left with that terminal stock and everybody turns away from it and suddenly it was like oh my god now what now where do we go yeah 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 and that's where that's where you're your tools come in um mm -hmm. you you've mentioned the kind of quant quant qual mix a few times and i and i think it's a nice segue there because obviously environmental factors are one thing and you mentioned there um, gender neutrality with, with certain uh, generations political motives so these things are uh, qualitative um factors right in, in trend mm -hmm. forecasting and perhaps we can talk a bit about how how that element comes into your your forecasting at, at WGSN because there is there's both sides to to me uh, as an onlook you've got this the the kind of AI machine learning piece and then you've you've got almost this um this people human intelligence side to things as well and and there is a mix of those and so I wonder if we could, we could talk about that mix and that balance and I guess to to cover off the the AI machine learning side first. I know there's there's a tool, Trend Curve Plus. Yes. Some machine learning tool. Could you just explain a, a bit about what that is first, and then we could we could maybe look at the human side as well and how those things come together. Sure. So Trend Curve Plus is our um, time series forecasting model. So that is the model that I was talking about that brings in the different uh, data sources and aggregates them to give you that output, which is the proportion of the mix. And it will forecast it out uh, two years. Mm -hmm. And okay. we are also able to look at the confidence rating within that. And it will also pick up on things like the seasonality. Okay, yeah. And so, so you have that element. But but what is really interesting uh, for me is that apologies if I'm sort of misquoting this or taking it out of context. But stage one of WGSN's research methodology, I think it's the stepping mm -hmm. methodology, it's called observing. Yes, um, and and that's defined as experts who are covering a broad range of specialisms and skills, and they're yes. building foundational research. So you've got this sort of this deep industry context coming from experts, from human experts, who can, I suppose, pick up on the new nuances around context and, and history and the dynamics there. That's very human orientated. And then you've got the, the, the AI machine learning um, tools that you've described, 
that are also running there. So are there sort of specific aspects that, that both pick up on? Um, so are, are there specific aspects in trend forecasting where human intuition is, is still much more powerful? Is it, is it those nuances? Is it those, those areas of, of qualitative um, data that, that perhaps the AI machine learning can't, can't read or, or apply in the same way? Yeah, exactly. And, and there are, you know, you have to be open both both parties and this is where I talk about that importance of of uh, giving both parties equal importance in this process because our um, our expert trend forecasters need to be open to what the data is showing but equally our our data scientists need to be open to the fact that the model may be missing something. So we use like an analyst in the loop process where we will uh, confer between the two of them to agree on on which of those models to use and which one we feel is the right one going forward. And I think that, um, you know, some of the really good examples of this were around the pandemic. And this was a tough time to be working in the fashion industry yeah. generally. Yeah. Um, but it, it was also like quite a tough time to be working with data because suddenly your historical data didn't mean anything. And, you know, you had to look at, at different benchmarks. And, you know, particularly the the AI doesn't understand things like that there's a vaccine coming. <laughs> and, sure. you know, you have to think about these things, right? So if we'd have followed what the model said then you know we would just be sort of having an exponential rise forevermore in uh, in sweatpants but what the model wasn't able to see is that we were at a point where vaccines were coming in and people were able to kind of go back to the office and you know i mean i'm sitting here in my sweatpants today obviously it's not like that <laughs> that changed uh you know that 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 change that is is very much here to stay at some level but as we're kind of then thinking about were all of those weddings that people couldn't have during the pandemic. So you had this kind of pent up demand for holidays, events, weddings. So the the dresses category had actually been in decline for quite a little while pre-pandemic, but we could see when we're looking at our qualitative research that actually there was going to be a, a turnaround in that category. And so in these cases, actually, what we do is we'll overlay an analyst line onto our model. And, you know, in certainly in the case of dress category, like the analyst line was bang on the model, on the money, whereas the model was, was out um, because it had, it had underestimated where the dress category would be. And I think the other thing, you know, to kind of think about is the and I think talking about sweatpants because it's uh, I, I feel like I spend an inordinate amount of my time talking about sweatpants <laughs> but it, it's just a great leveler right everybody can yeah. sort of appreciate this trend no matter who you are or where you are but going into the pandemic what in fact I think it was about in 2016 we started to look at certain macro trends and you spoke earlier about our stepic methodology which is a kind of variation on a pest methodology so it stands for society technology the environment politics industry and creativity and when we're looking at that sort of foundational research what we were 
starting to pick up on well ahead of the pandemic were certain new innovations that were changing consumers' lifestyles. And that would be things like food delivery services. So like Just Eat and Deliveroo starting coming in and 5G, a huge driver on things like streaming for entertainment, for gaming, and also things like economic and political uh, impacts, which were changing the way that particularly younger people were were choosing to live. So there was uh, the rise in the gig economy and people taking on more freelance jobs where they were working at home. Young people were and still are being priced out of home ownership in bigger cities. So we're moving out of the city a little more. So then they've got a commute in. So they're less willing to kind of show up into the office every day. And all of these things were combining to point towards people spending more time at home. So as we were then taking on all of this macro research, we had a trend that was called the home hub. And so then we're looking at it from an interiors point of view. We're looking at, you know, multifunctional furniture. So we were looking at things like um, furniture that would double up as gym equipment. We were looking at furniture that was kind of quite cozy and cocooning and, and helped deal with anxiety, which was another one of the kind of big driving factors that we were looking at. We were also looking at what the home office was like as people were what? working from home a lot more. And of course, from a fashion point of view, the, the the natural outcome of this was, of course, sweatpants <laughs> and, yeah. and thinking about, well, what does comfort mean? And something that in the industry we call two mile wear, which is the clothes that you wear in the sort of two mile radius of your house as you're kind of nipping out to pick up some groceries or go and do the school run or nip to the, uh, you know, out to take your dog for a walk or whatever it is. Um, and so going into the pandemic we already had these forecasts in place but of course we never in any of that research i will be very clear we never we never well, I was predicted going to ask you, why didn't you tell us why didn't you tell us <laughs> that's bad. that sounds what you've described there is to me is the changes that have happened as a result of the pandemic but you you were predicting the you know these 2016 2017 so. yeah if you, it's amazing when yeah we yeah. when all of those things happened essentially in many ways as the pandemic hit as a society we were actually very well set up to be able to function in our homes mm. and wow. so yeah it the, the pandemic accelerated that trend but all of those things really predate the pandemic and something like a pandemic is is like, like you say it's such a qualitative factor and vaccines coming in and, and all that kind of thing how how do you uh, wgsn make sure the balance is is maintained between quantitative and qualitative because it's i suppose it's a, it's it's a fast moving emerging technology that you're dealing with and there are advances in that every day and yet there are also qualitative factors that are coming into that every day so so what it is that the daily monthly thing is how do you maintain that balance yeah like i said it, it's just an integral part of the process and i think the other really important thing here is to is to also understand the expertise that our clients have in their business their customer and their you know, knowledge 
gut instinct slash expertise that they are bringing into how they work with our forecasts as well because it really takes a kind of combination of all of these things to get to the the most accurate and, and the correct outcome and there are dangers in if you follow the data too much, as I, I've sort of described. And I think also uh, things like social media, like often the sort of for all that you get around social media. And there are, you know, and if you can hit some of those sort of viral social media moments, then of course there's big money to be made. But often what happens is that the turnaround that a retailer has, they they often spike on social media. And if you've missed it and you're then trying to play catch up, you end up with stock where that moment has, has kind of frankly passed. So you do have to just really assess like, is this the right thing to do at this point to continue to chase this viral moment? Or do we just accept it was missed? and move on and and start to sort of focus on where we go next. And this is really important. Right? It has to be a constant conversation because trends don't all move at one speed and they come, some of them may come really driven from the catwalks. Others may be a sort of slow burner that we see happening a lot at retail. Others may be small moments in time that we see um, driven by social media. And I think the other thing is that as experts, what you realize is that the the models are, are driven by how many instances it is seeing of a certain trend. But we know as fashion analysts that sometimes it only takes that one handbag <laughs> to create a trend. But if if you have that expertise, you see that one handbag and you're like, yeah, <laughs> this, this is going to be big. And, and so you have to be able to essentially upweight the relevancy of that. Yes. Okay. I think it's uh, it's fascinating. I was talking to another another guy on this, this podcast, uh, James Wilkes, and, and they're in... Uh, marine terrorism, marine security, uh, intelligence. And so uh, slightly different, but, but we were talking again about the balance between models and modeling and AI, and then the deep industry specific, deep context knowledge that you can only get from 20, 25, 30 years in, in the industry. And you can spot things like the handbag presumably not in in his instance in, in marine <laughs> security but you know what i mean and that is just so valuable and that that is where i think that maybe we're beginning to get a consensus on on this stuff is that you know the tools the tools that can be provided by AI machine learning are, are just hugely hugely beneficial and, and the progress and, and the speed with which they move is is huge for, for companies but also that balance is just so so crucial particularly in, in these kind of industries I guess as we uh, come towards the end of the time, Francesca, and I was going to ask you to sort of do what you do best and maybe predict the future and, and get your thoughts on what the future might look like for, for trend forecasting with, with such fast moving technology involved with the continued use of that, of that deep sort of human intelligence you've mentioned, how, how is that balance going to continue? Are you going to keep doing what you're doing as you're doing it? What do things look like? It's it's such an exciting time to be working in trend forecasting and as a trend forecaster, my eyes are always looking forward. Um, but when I sort of do take a moment, especially at this time of year, to sort of 
reflect and think about how we have fundamentally changed the process of trend forecasting over the last decade. And it looks so different now than when I first joined the business. And, you know, I'm incredibly proud of, of kind of how we've done that because I feel like we have got to a state where it's more useful, more applicable, more actionable and, and more accurate. But it is equally without creativity and without that qualitative element to what we do. And when I say element, I don't want to downplay that, like mm. that, that true weighting, that true balance between them and also between that partnership with, with our clients as well and, and their expertise. Like I said, that, that absolutely cannot be underestimated in this. We are not doing, the AI doesn't come in and do their job for them. Yeah. It's like, if you think about a sort of fashion buyer, then they're essentially placing these bets. And what we're able to do is able to sort of give them as much information and intelligence on where to place those bets and which are the right ones so that we don't end up with as many of this kind of huge amounts of terminal stock. I think the other things that we need to, to really think about are these are the macro factors as well, because as trend forecasters, we're not just thinking about, is it a skinny gene or a wide leg gene? We also spend a lot of time on looking at things like new innovations and how things like the, the environmental crisis are fundamentally changing the supply chain and changing the way that the industry needs to work. And so if you look at things like the industry's reliance on on fossil fuels for polyester, on on cotton, and how volatile those commodities can be, particularly around things like the impact of weather, or you know, we saw the impact of crude oil and and the issues around geopolitical conflicts that can have huge impacts on on the materials that are going into to making fashion, and 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 also we're we're looking at more legislation coming in from governments to really uh, tackle the environmental crisis and that fundamentally changes how things are made but it also creates this really ripe environment for new innovations to come in and new materials for people to work with and so this is where it's really important to not just be looking back at data but also to kind of take these on board and understand like if you're working with this new material i i'm a very strong believer with sustainability is that it's not always about creating the same thing but in a more sustainable way but actually when you're really working with new innovation it's how those innovations actually help to create an entire new aesthetic which mm. may lend itself to sort of new products and new trends and that's not always picked up by an ai because it doesn't see enough instances of it in order to be able to kind of project that so we have to look at other ways to to kind of quantify that and and to kind of present that to our clients with here is new trend and here is all of the research that we have that's going to tell you that this is something that you should follow but in these instances we've got all of this data and we can help you to kind of trade your your volume trends as well so it, it's really so many different ways of looking at things but yeah i would say that kind of longer term 
uh, scenario planning for businesses is something that we, as forecasters, we also really help with, but in a, in a kind of very different way. So having that blend of those things is really important. Sure. Yeah. And I, uh, just as you're talking, I'm sort of imagining the benefits for, for industries out, outside of fashion as well. I mean, I know WGSN already, um, are doing, you know, forecasting for, for industries, uh, wider than just fashion, but there seems so much transferable benefit. And when you talk about sort of scenario planning and, and that kind of thing, in a slightly different language, perhaps to trend forecasting, it, it's the it, same thing, isn't it? But it becomes so applicable yeah. to so many industries laterally. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. It really does because it's what, what we do at WGSN is we is we map out future scenarios and then we apply that down to the industries we serve. Now we are best known for doing that in fashion, but you can take those future scenarios and you can apply them to like pretty much any industry that really needs to know what is that world going to look like for the future consumer. So whether you're working in, in something like investments or financial planning, anything where you need a, that kind of view on where are things going and, and is my business or service still going to be relevant in, uh, in five to 10 years time, then the research that we do absolutely adds value to that. Yeah, it's brilliant. And hopefully, hopefully those listening can, can, um, can see that and we'll look into that uh, a lot more. Jessica, you've been so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. And it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. Like I said, it's my favorite topic. Always happy to talk about the future. 